Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, good morning, everyone. We're, we're ready for chapter 18, part 3 today in John's Gospel. We are looking at the trial of Jesus. We're looking, we entered two weeks ago into his passion narrative as John tells it in his Gospel. And so we're trying to take it a little slow, working through some of the, the details that we don't always catch when we just read the story. But uh, today we're going to pick up the story in verse 25. Let's Let's begin with our prayer, if you have a prayer card with you. Do you have an extra one? You know, let me see if I do. I, I, I try and keep a couple extras tucked in here, and then I forget them. But I don't think I do today. Sorry, but I will make some more. I'll try and always keep a few in here. Let's uh, look off of a friend. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity. With the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We left off in our last session with Jesus being taken from Annas to Caiaphas. You'll recall I explained last time who Annas and Caiaphas were, both high priests, Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. Annas, kind of the father of a dynasty of priests, high priests, if you will, because no longer was it a lifetime appointment, but the Romans ruled over that office and appointed different people that they felt they could control. And John uniquely gives us the trial before Annas, whereas the other Gospels more uniquely give us the trial before Caiaphas. So you'll notice that at the end of Verse 24, last where we ended, it says, And then Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And in verse 25, where we pick up the story today, we do not see uh, a real narrative before of what goes on in Caiaphas. In literally two verses, we're going to talk about Peter's denial, but then it talks about, then John says they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium, which is where Pilate would be. So John doesn't, again, he, he assumes that his readers are familiar with the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's writing many years after they are. He's not going to rehash things that need to be rehashed. He had a point for picking Annas out. Some historians and critics of the Bible have tried to look at the four accounts and say, well, this doesn't match that. And you always get in trouble when you try to do that, when you nitpick. They're, they're not written to match one another. Okay, They're written to tell a story from different points of view. 
and, and we always remember things from different points of view, and different people do. And John wants us to hear. So Peter's denial, probably the trial with Caiaphas was the longer trial. Caiaphas was the reigning high priest. It tells us that that's where the Sanhedrin, or at least part of the Sanhedrin, where the chief priests and elders all gathered. But they began with Annas for whatever reason, because Annas was a figurehead and a powerful figurehead. And in, in the trial, if we compare all the Gospels, in the trial with Annas, Jesus actually speaks back to Annas in a little more pointed way. We see Jesus in control. Whereas before Caiaphas, he's more like the lamb led to the slaughter and not answering. So they're telling things differently, okay? Um, all accurately, just differently. So Peter's denials, his three denials, we hear them in John. Uh, it sounds like they're before Annas, but they're really happening before Caiaphas. But also we need to know that it, it may not have been just three. That could be idiomatic for Peter had many denials, okay? Uh, we're not worried about the number three. There is many phrases in Old Testament scripture in place where it says for three times and four. You know, it, it's a saying, you know, for many times. Um, so let's don't get stuck on when they happen. Let's don't get stuck on how many times they happen. What's important is that they happen. Why is it important that all of the writers tell us that Peter betrayed Jesus? Let's look at that. Let's read a little bit here. I'm going to read through a few verses. I'm starting with verse 25. I think to we'll take we'll go into part of Pilate's trial, maybe through verse 38, and and stop there. But but let's let's read right now just 25 to 32, and we'll see if we get to 38 before the end of the hour. So John 18 verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, Are not you also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the cock crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early. They themselves did not enter the praetorium, so they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was about to die. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Think through what we're learning. Peter's denial is happening in the context of Jesus being bound in a trial Peter is in a courtyard. Peter can see. He's been led in, as we learned last time, by John, who had access to the high priest for some reason. And they're in the house, or they're in the courtyard anyway. And it's cold. There's a fire. They're warming each other. And John makes a point, as the others do, that Peter denies knowing Jesus. Now, Jesus predicted this earlier in the 
story. We, we had it earlier before during kind of the, the foot washing scene or about that time in the last, that last evening. Uh, the other gospel writers, some of them put it right in the garden uh, when Peter, Peter makes this brash statement, I'll follow you, Lord. Even, even to death, I'll follow you. And he's made those kind of statements before. It's kind of bold to confess his, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you no matter what, even to death. That's that bold, brash personality. And Jesus told him, before this evening is through, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Or in, indeed many times. Probably at that point, it was hard for Peter to even imagine what Jesus was saying to him. You know, He probably just sloughed it off like, I would never do that. How many of us have ever said something bold? Thought we would never do that. Only to look back on our life and say, wow, I did that. I'll bet all of us have at one time or another. We can learn, I guess, from those instances to not be so quick maybe with our speech or what we promise or what we do. You ever notice when, you're, when your children are little, uh, they really hang on the word promise. You ever notice that? How quickly they learn what a promise is? But daddy, you promised. And so then you're going back through your mind. Did I, did I say that word? Did I promise? Because if I did, oh no. You know, and I've caught, I've had that discussion when my kids were little, you know, and I'm thinking, I know, wait a minute, I don't think I promised. But, you know, probably I did. And, and, and this is the idea of our word being, speaking our heart and speaking what we truly mean, uh, there's a lot that we can learn from this denial of Peter, but I think the number one thing that we take from this is that in Peter is every one of us. In Peter's denials of Jesus is every one of us. Think about your life. When have you denied Jesus? It's probably not hanging there at the forefront of your mind, but think back over your life. Maybe it's been a long time ago. Maybe it's when you were young. Was there something that happened around you that you hid your faith or denied your faith or whatever? I, I can remember when I was a young, very young Christian. I can remember being a little anxious about the thought of openly praying in public. What do people think of me? It was just an instinct. Well, that's denying Jesus. We're all guilty of denying Jesus. No, I don't do that anymore. I've learned that it's great to pray in public. Can't wait to pray in public. But that came with seasoned time and faith, you see. There, there's an example here that one of the ancients, uh, the early church father, Cyril of Alexandria, we've talked of him before. He was one of the bishops of the early church. He, he wrote a comparison here that I think is really powerful. He said of this idea of Peter's denial, he said this. He said, for just as iron, though naturally strong, Cannot enter, cannot encounter without injury the harder kinds of stone if it is not strengthened in the forge, so a person's soul may be buoyed up with unwavering enthusiasm for everything that is good. However, it can never be triumphant in the conflicts that come up unless it is first perfected by the grace of the Spirit of God. Do you catch what Cyril is saying there? What, what, is the, what is he talking about, iron and forges? What is a forge? It's the impurity a, a forge is a big fire, a big hot melting fire. Okay, And in respect to iron, 
And I'm not an expert at this, but I did look it up just to make sure I was right what I thought it was was happening here. Now, with iron, they stick the piece of iron into the forge and let it get really hot. And then they begin to hammer it. Okay, maybe they'll make a sword. Maybe they'll make a horseshoe. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll make a big piece of I-beam or whatever for a building in today's vernacular. The idea of the forge heats up the iron. Iron is naturally strong, but it's not strong enough, okay, unless it's been through the forge. That's where Peter's at in this denial. He's in the forge. It's been called tempering. Tempering, very good. It's being tempered, okay? He, Peter, this is a trial for Peter, This is a, but it, it, as, as it is for each one of us in our lives, and we need the heat of the fire. We come out stronger on the other side of it. That's what Cyril is, St. Cyril of Alexandria is saying. He, he goes on and says, Even the disciples, therefore, themselves were frail at first. Peter looks pretty frail here. I mean, if we're not careful, we say, Peter, you've watched the guy be raised from, you've, you've seen him raise people from the dead. You've seen him heal the blind. You've seen him make the lame walk. I mean, how could you deny him? Well, that's just the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> That's us saying, in hindsight, how could you? If we were there, guess what? Every one of us would have denied Jesus too. All of them did. They all ran away. So at least Peter was there. So let's give Peter a little credit for being there anyway. We did that last week. I said, let's give Peter and John some credit. They both followed. They both went. They're afraid, yeah, afraid to be arrested. Now, what is Peter afraid of? If he's associated with Jesus, they might arrest him. Looks like they might kill Jesus. They might kill him. I mean, it's a, it's a great fear. Today, if the worst happened and somebody came to you to arrest you and said you were with so-and-so, confess, are you a Christian? This happens all the time in countries where there is no freedom. Even today in our world, Christian believers are arrested. They are sought out. And they are ultimately martyred because of their faith in Jesus. They're usually given a chance to recant. Will you deny Jesus? And if they don't, off with their heads. We, we see it happen all the time in our world today. It still happens. It was happening 2,000 years ago. It still has happened in every age. And I suppose it will until Christ returns. So let's don't be too hard on Peter, but let's learn from his... Let's learn from his, uh, his weakness here, because it is our weakness. It's all our weakness. Um, so, he's warming himself. I, I want to point out a couple of things about his, his denial here. They said to him in verse 25, Are you not also one of his disciples? He denied it with the words, I am not. Now, in Greek, those are the words we talked about last week. They're the inverse of what Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am. Two words in Greek, ego ami, I am. And those were the holy name of God from clear back in the book of Exodus when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. Moses said, who shall, I say, sent me, I am. Ego ami. Well, this is auk ami. It's two words. Auk ami. Okay, just the exact inverse of opposite. It, it, it would be like Peter saying, not me. Okay. Instead of I am, it's not me. Now, at first, remember, he was just being kind of rushed through the doorway. John was trying to get him in when that first servant girl said, hey, you're one of them. 
And maybe he wasn't thinking of really ultimately premeditatingly denying Jesus. He was just like, not me. I want to get in there and see what's going on. But there comes a point after repeated denials that it's not me. I'm afraid. I, I can't afford to be associated with it. Even to the point where the final one, um, the, the, the person says to him here, um, there was also, it says, a kinsman of the person whose ear was cut off. Now, we learned that person's name was Malchus, if you remember. The servant of the high priest was Malchus, whose ear was cut off by Peter in the garden trying to defend, defend Jesus, trying to uphold his, his uh, brash uh, willingness to defend Jesus even to the death. And Jesus tells him to put away his sword. Jesus heals the man's ear. Well, it's one of his relatives is in the courtyard and says, hey, no. You cut my cousin's ear off. And Peter says again, not me. Not me. Peter again denied it. And then it says, what? The cock crowed. The cock crowed. Now this tells us, you know, if you've ever had roosters, roosters can crow about any time they want. I remember as a little boy, we had chickens. Even though I lived in town, we had chickens. Uh... We, we kept them caged, of course, but they, the rooster, that, that guy could crow anytime he wanted. You know, usually, well, I always thought, you know, sun up. They're going to crow at sun up. You know, it's morning and sun up when the rooster crows. That's in the movies. You know? <laughs> they crow whenever they want to. And usually in the middle of the night, <laughs> they, they, they have a strange habit of crowing. And, and every commentator I've looked at here in the Bible says that it was common for roosters to start crowing about three in the morning. Somewhere about three in the morning, they just start crowing. Uh, I guess because, you know, there's, there's this saying that chickens roost early, you know. They go to roost early. You know, I mean, they go to sleep early. About three in the morning, he's ready to get up. So it, it's pr- we know that what's been going on here, it's, it's the middle of the night. So it very well could be somewhere around that time that uh, process has happened. It just, just wasn't a rushed in thing. Hours have gone by. And we know that in just a few verses it's going to say, or in the next verse, let me jump over there, and then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. So this has been happening, this cock crowing, this Peter's denying has been happening at Caiaphas' house, even though John doesn't make that as clear as the other writers do. But to go from Caiaphas' house to the praetorium, they're not going to go wake Pilate up at 3 in the morning. Okay, They're not that dumb. Now they've got they've had their own trial. They've already they did what they did in the middle of the night because they knew what they were doing was wrong, illegal. It wasn't just even by their own standards, but they're trying to rush this guy to judgment. They're trying to rush Jesus to judgment in the middle of the night. Trumped up charges against him trying to figure out what they can do. And so they take him to Pilate. And remember last week I told you that the Psalm uh, 88 where Jesus talks about Jesus talks about hanging in the pit. You know, we can relate that to Jesus. There were probably several hours where Jesus just hung in that sacred pit at Caiaphas' house. So we can assume the Roman people started their work day at 6 a.m. So it's probably somewhere around 6 a.m. when they take him to Pilate. Okay, I don't think they had the brashness to go wake the Roman governor up in the middle of the night. But when they do... Um, it says they take him to the praetorium. Now, the praetorium would be a place where Pilate was presiding, okay, 
Pilate is the governor of the whole province of what the Romans like to call Palestine, but we would know it as Israel. Okay, it was an occupied territory at that time by the Roman government, the Roman Empire. Pilate was a governor, and the governor's seat, we know, was in Caesarea, or Caesarea, however you want to say it, up by the sea where King Herod had built a, built a nice mansion for the Roman governor. So, but, but because it's time for the Passover, and the Passover is such a big event in Israel, and so many people come to Jerusalem, the Roman governor is going to be there to help keep the peace because you never know what might happen. The Jewish people had a tendency to try and revolt. So one of the big things that Pilate had to do was always stop revolts from happening. Rome didn't like it when its subjects tried to revolt. And so he's probably in Jerusalem for that very reason and to keep, help keep the peace. And so they take him to the praetorium. It was early, it says, verse 28. It says very carefully, though, they themselves did not enter the praetorium because that would have, in their ceremony of, of trying to remain ritually pure, that would have made them unclean to go into a pagan temple or a pagan office, if you will, on the early morning of the Passover. They're, they're, they want to have their Passover celebration. Now, what does that say to us about these Pharisees and these Sad Council of Sanhedrin, whoever they are. What does it say to them that they're so worried about not being clean that they won't go into Pilate's courthouse, which is a legal house of law, but they will hold an illegal trial in the middle of the night to condemn an innocent man? See the irony of that? The, the, the hypocrisy of that? They're hypocrites. They, they have no concept of what purity really is. So they're worried about not being defiled. They want to eat the Passover. So it says Pilate went out to them. I think that's an interesting statement, that Pilate went out to them. I think there are some thoughts here that we might think about. If you were the Roman governor, I mean, they come knocking on your door at 6 a.m. Uh, yeah, well, we're open for business. It is time for the work day. But they won't come in. No, you come out to us. You know, Maybe. What would you do? Go away. You know, it's busy. You know, I probably, you know. But this suggests, and I, I can't prove this, nobody can, but it just suggests that maybe, just maybe, Pilate was so willing to come out because maybe Annas and Caiaphas had already talked to Pilate. Maybe they've already kind of greased the skids to say, hey, we're going to be bringing this guy to you. We need him condemned. Okay, it's very possible. Because it's not consistent that Pilate would just acquiesce and go out to them, outside to meet him there. Um, and so uh, Pilate comes out and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And this is a fascinating exchange. Pilate says, he, he acquiesces, he comes out to them, he says, what, what are you accusing this man of? Okay, if I'm going to judge him, what are you accusing him of? And they have, their answer is brilliant. What is their answer? Just brilliant, I think. That's, I'm saying that sarcastically. They don't even have a charge. <laughs> they don't even have a charge. They're, they're just saying, hey, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Right? And, and if you're Pilate, you're thinking, evildoer, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean, evildoer? We're not worried about evildoers. You know, why are you bothering me with this? So they're probably a little bit surprised, these 
chief priests and Sadducees. He's a little bit surprised that Pilate is asking such a good question. What are you bringing him for? And so, well, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him according to your own law. Now, this is not going their way, is it? Not going their way. There's some interesting things at work here. Pilate is being judicious. He's actually being judicious. He's actually thinking, you know, I, I don't need to judge this case. Take him away. This is not important for the Roman governor. Well, that spoils their whole plan. They're not expecting that, especially if Annas and Caiaphas had talked to him ahead of time. Not expecting that at all. So they have to think fast. And their thinking fast is, we need the death penalty. Okay, It's not lawful for us to put him to death, they say. Take him and judge him according to your own laws. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put the, any man to death. I, I love that. Again, hypocrisy screaming from their lips. They say, it is not lawful for us, according to our own laws, to put any man to death. Is that true? Well, according to Roman law, it was not lawful for them to put anyone to death. Rome reserved capital punishment for itself. But according to their laws, they put lots of people to death. They were ready to put Jesus to death in the streets if they'd caught him earlier. They took Stephen out after this, of course, and stoned him. Remember the woman caught in adultery? What were they going to do with her? They had the rocks in their hand. Capital punishment. They weren't afraid of that. They were ready to stone her. Their law said they could stone a man to death. But that's not good enough. They can't do that. Why can't they do that? Why don't they just take Jesus and stone him to death? You ever thought about that? What do you think? Why, why don't they just take Pilate up on this? Okay, he says we can kill him. Let's go kill him. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been a, a spectacle to show everybody else. Wouldn't have created as much of a spectacle, okay. Or carried the authority. Authority? Wouldn't have carried the authority. It would have been, hey, you know, people, Jewish people might have gotten mad. Hey, you killed this nice guy that healed all of our sick. They're mad at them. And this way they can say, hey, we didn't kill him. The Romans did. So they want authority behind this decision. And one other reason. It's been prophesied by Jesus himself that he would hang on a tree. They call that hanging on a tree. The trees, woods, wood comes from trees. The cross was lifted up kind of like a tree form, and Jesus was hung on a cross. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, when I be lifted up, I will draw them into myself, John chapter 8. And that goes all the way back to, I think, Exodus or somewhere, where it says that uh, cursed is the man or maybe it's Deuteronomy, I can't remember, but cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. The idea of crucifixion. Jesus must die by crucifixion. It's prophesied. Not only by him, but by the Old Testament. So it doesn't work for them to go put him and stone him to death. So now they've got to think fast again. Well, what are we doing here? This is, this, this is not going our way. Uh, and so verse 32 even tells us that, that this was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken about how he was going to die. That was what we mentioned, what he spoke in John chapter 8. Um, now, uh, we've went through verse 32. Let's go a little further here. Let's look at the next five verses. 
five or six verses. And let's see the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. Okay. So Pilate entered the praetorium again. And he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, to this point in the dialogue, I'm going to stop right there. To this point in the dialogue, they haven't, John hasn't told us that they've called him their king. Okay, now other gospel writers have, okay, but John hasn't. So we're assuming here that Pilate knows the story. There's this word that there's this king out there, the supposed king. Maybe, maybe even Annas and Caiaphas said it in the beginning, but Pilate has a reason to come in here and say to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, now back to the text here, verse 33, 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? It's a good question. Maybe Jesus is even insinuating here. I don't, I, God forgive me, it might maybe not be good to use the phrase Jesus insinuated. I don't mean to use the wrong words there. But maybe Jesus is saying, it, it sounds like you've heard about me. Okay. Pilate answers, am I a Jew? You, you hear disdain in Pilate's answer to Jesus. We're gonna, I'm, I'm commentating as I go along. Let me just read it. Sorry about that. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Stop on that question at the end of 38. That's a fantastic question on Pilate's part. What is truth? I, I want us to think about this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Okay? Uh, the frame of reference here. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, what would it mean if he was the king of the Jews? Jesus asks him, "What's your frame of re- what Jesus has? What's your frame of reference here?" Because it could mean two things. To the Jews, the king of them was to be a Messiah who would what? Liberate them from Rome, right? Okay, so that would be one meaning, but they also know that there is the poss- that the Messiah is a, a theological, a philosophical, a spiritual leader. Okay, and so Jesus is testing Pilate. What do you think? Why are you asking this? Is, you asking because you're thinking as a Roman governor, or are you asking because you are wondering about my spiritual kingdom? He says in disdain, am I a Jew? What does Pilate say? Pilate saying, I could care less, is what Pilate is saying. I could care less what you Jews think about your coming Messiah. I could care less what you guys think about being a king. But, he says, 
your own nation, your people have handed you over to me. Now what have you done? So Pilate, at this point of the trial, before Pilate, still doesn't know the charge against Jesus. He still wants to hear it from him. What is the charge here? What's really happening? Because it doesn't appear to him that Jesus has done anything that warrants a death penalty. Because if he was an insurrectionist, there's been no evidence of it, right? All he's done is go around healing people, making the temple priests mad, but he sure has been making the people happy, (laughs) healing people. You know, the crowds are just chanting. So I I just, I'm spending some time on this because I want us to get the feel of, you know, sometimes we just read this story from 2,000 years later and think everybody hailed him as this king. And uh, Pilate's questioning, really questioning. So he hears Jesus answer, and in, in what have you done? Jesus' answer is, is not one of defense. Okay, he doesn't defend himself, but he plainly states, my kingship is not of this world. What's that saying? That's as if he's saying, yes, I am a king. Yes, I am a king, but I'm not a king of this world. And by saying I'm not a king of this world, what should that say to Pilate? You don't need to be afraid of me. You don't need to, I'm not here to overthrow the Romans. Jesus <laughs> never came to overthrow the Romans. There, there's, there's no reason for Pilate or Caesar or Rome to be afraid of Jesus. And, and I think that's important for us to see that. But he is not Jesus. Let's be clear. Jesus is not backing away from the truth. He is saying, I am a king. In fact, it comes out a little more. It goes, he, he said, if I were, if my kingship was of this world, believe me, my servants would be fighting for me. You'd know it. Okay, there's no way you could stop me if it were. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Pilate can hear it in his answer. So you're really a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am. You say that I am. Some of, the, some of the versions of Scripture here actually phrase this a little differently. What do some of it? Now, I'm reading the RSV. What does some of yours say right there? You, you say, are right correct. in saying that I am a king. Yours says what? You are right in saying that I am a king. You are right in saying that I am a king. And, and yours version you're reading is what? Uh, NIV. NIV. And Dennis, you said? You say correctly that I am king. It's A-M-P. You say that I am correct. Okay. Anybody else have anything different there? No, about the, James thou sayest that I am a king. Thou sayest that I am a king. Okay. And that's a little vague. Okay. That's a little bit vague. The King James there is a little bit vague. Some of them are a little bit vague. And in, in, is, is, is it Jesus agreeing or is he just restating, oh, so you say I'm a king. Okay. Whereas these others have said, you say correctly. Okay. If we go back and read the other gospel accounts, um, Mark and, Mark and Matthew make it clear. They say, it is as you say. That's the English that they've tried to render. I didn't bring my laptop in here. I was going to read you the, the Greek, okay? Not in Greek, but if we translate Greek to English, it doesn't sound good. It, it takes everything out of order, okay? Because that's the way most foreign languages are. Uh, and, and I was just going to read it to you. Uh, a king, you say, I am 
or, or such. I mean, there's a whole flow there that just makes it sound. But what's clearly happening here, so I didn't bring my computer in, so I can't do that, um, is Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king. It is as you say. It is correct that you say, I am a king. Okay, he's not backing away from anything. And for then, the very next verse goes even, for Jesus says, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus is saying it is truth that I am a king. It is truth that I am the Son of God. It's truth that I am a Messiah. I mean, all the things you've ever heard about me, Pilate, it's all true. I am. And at this, uh, in fact, Jesus even says, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. So Jesus is drawing a line in the sand of people in the world. If people are of the truth, they know who I am. They hear my voice, in other words. He's using that idea of hearing voice. But if people don't know who I am, they're clearly not of the truth. And Pilate asks this question, well, what is truth? That's an interesting question. Now, I have something else I want to read to you here from... um, This is from uh, one we don't, uh, an early church uh, bishop we don't hear of that often, but it was quite famous for his writings in the early, he's in from the second century now, okay, second century. His name is Melito, M-E-L-I-T-O, Melito of Sardis. He's a bishop of Sardis. Sardis is up in what we would call Turkey today, or so that was up there in the Smyrna area and Ephesus and all those, Laodicea, all those places. Melito of Sardis, who's bishop in the second century, one of the things he's famous for is for having been one of the earliest to list a canon of the Old Testament books. He says this, Who is this God? It is he who is himself truth, whose word is truth. And what is truth? Like Pilate asked that question, you know, what is just what is truth? And Melito says, that which is not fashioned or made or represented by art, that is, that has never been brought into existence and is on that account called truth. If therefore someone worships that which is made with hands, it is not the truth that he worships or yet the word of truth. I love those words from Melito. He's saying, what is he saying? He's saying, what is truth? Truth is something that can't be captured in human terms. Truth is something that's not made of this world. Truth has to transcend this world. Now, that's exactly the problem we not only have, have always had in the world, we have today. Think about the Roman governor Pilate's point of view. He's a Roman. Romans didn't think about in the terms of absolute truth. They could care less about absolute truth. Everything was subjective to them. Did the Greek philosophers believe in absolute truth? No. Does anyone believe in absolute truth? Good Jews and Christ followers have and should because God is truth and his truth transcends this world. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. On the life. See, we're living in a world today that seriously struggles with this. Pilate's question could be asked by anyone today. What is truth? Does anyone even know what truth is? 
That's a problem. And apparently people were asking it back then, too. Because Melito writes about it. He says, what is truth? Well, let me tell you what truth is. Truth can only come from God. It has to transcend. It can't. If, if you made it, or I made it, or this world somehow made it, then it's not truth because we can undo what we did. So I, I know this is kind of a deep theological point, but it's so important to get this. What difference does it matter in our world today if there is such a thing as objective truth? It seems so obvious to us, perhaps. What, what difference does it make? Anything can be true. <laughs> if there is no such thing as objective truth, then anything can be true. Then you can truly say, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens all the time in our society today. Continue. That's how laws are torn down. That's how nations are torn down. That's how societies are torn down because there's nothing to stand on that's true. If there is nothing that is ultimately truth, objectively by its own nature, then, then you and I have no reason. There, there's no reason for any laws. Well, on what basis do we even have laws? Ultimately, laws have, then on power. And that's exactly what the ancient world did. And that's exactly what the world today still tries to do. Rulers rise up on power to claim a place and a position of power. And they rule by their might, not by truth. And wherever we see truth being ignored, then we see power being elevated. Somebody's power. And that's exactly what's happening here in the story of Jesus. Truth, which is Jesus, is, a, is being ignored. It's being ignored by the Jews. And it's about to be ignored by the Romans. So, what is truth? Great question, Pilate. Let's see how Jesus answers. Let's look a little bit further. Verse 38b, the second half of 38. After he had said this, He went out to the Jews again, and he told them, I find no crime in him. Or maybe yours says, I find no fault in him. In other words, I find nothing to accuse this man of. Being a philosophical king or a theological king is not a crime against Rome. You know, if you want to delude, Romans are thinking, if you want to delude yourself and thinking you have your own little kingdom here in the world, go right ahead. Just don't cause any insurrections, you know. Don't cause any revolts. So in verse 39, we see that there is this custom. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Will you have me release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And John adds a footnote here. Now Barabbas was a robber. A robber. An evil uh, person, a lawbreaker, if you will. Uh, who knows what all he had done. But what is this What is this custom? Why is, why is Pilate offering this to them? Do we know anything about this custom? Why would Pilate offer to release them? Hey, it's Passover. You've got a custom. Let's just release one prisoner. i got a way out of this. Okay, you say he's guilty. Fine, he's guilty. But let's go ahead and release him because it's custom. What, what is that about? Do we, have you ever heard of this custom before? Think about what does the Passover commemorate? 
What does the Passover commemorate in their minds? The release of being captives. That's right. From Egypt. The release of being captives from Egypt. So in, in this kind of symbolic act of being released from captivity, they somewhere along the line, we don't know exactly where or when or how, there is, at least I've not been able to discern where, when, or how, this custom grew up that at Passover time they would have one prisoner released. Now, maybe it wasn't even done every year, but apparently it's been done before because Pilate calls it, he knows about it, and he calls it a custom. And so uh, they shout for Barabbas. Stark contrast here, isn't there, between dark and light, between right and wrong. No, we'd rather let the guilty, we'd rather let the obvious guilty go free than to set free the innocent. The very antithesis of what Passover means. Passover meant that the children of Israel, who were taken slaves, Unjustly, I mean, this, this, did the Egyptians have any good reason to make the, the Israelites their slaves? No. Other than the fact that they became scared of them because after 400 years or so, I mean, after hundreds of years, they were, they were getting to be more populous than the actual Egyptians. So they were getting nervous. Well, you know, if these guys ever got together and started to revolt, we'd have a problem. So we need to turn them into slaves. Why were they even in Egypt? Do we remember the story of why the Israelites were in Egypt? Because of Joseph and the famine, that's right. There was a famine, so they were sent to Egypt to get food. And we know that prior to that, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And after living in Egypt, found favor with Pharaoh. And you know that's a long story in in the Old Testament we don't necessarily have time for. but, But those were good days for the Israelites when Joseph was in charge of Egypt. Because he rose to the rank of being second under Pharaoh. A Jew was second under Pharaoh. And it was good days, and there was plenty of food, and, and everything was good. And But, you know, eventually Joseph died, and eventually that Pharaoh died, and eventually more people died. And as, as history tends to be revised in most cultures, those the Jews weren't thought of with such favor as they were during Joseph's days. And eventually they became known as a problem. There are a bunch of pesky Jews here, Israelites, in other words, they were called in those days. And there's so many of them, they're so populous, we got to do something about this. And so they made them slaves. But they weren't slaves because they had been evil. They weren't slaves because they went down there and tried to revolt and were taken as prisoners of war. They were slaves because they were innocent. And therefore, that repre- there's a parallel there to us. Okay, We're all slaves. We're all captives. What are we slaves to? Slaves to sin. We're slaves to ourselves, our sinful selves. And we need to be set free. And there's only one who can set us free. And that's King Jesus. King Jesus is the only one that can set us free. And he came to do just that. And in the process of coming to set us free, this world seizes him because this world tries to have through the through the hands of the chief priests and Pharisees in their own world system, they, they seize him and try to have him put to death. They want it to look official by the Romans so that they can blame the Romans and say, 
See, even the Romans thought this man was bad. Therefore, you cannot get mad at us. He was bad. I know you thought he healed you. I know you thought he did all these great things, but he was really evil. And he was going to take us down and we would be even in worse place with the Romans if that had happened. And they're going to try and come off as saviors to the people by getting this Jesus killed. No way. Don't release Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And so it begins. Now, the next uh, section begins with... uh, they, Pilate decides to have Jesus scourged, but we won't have time to go into all that, so we'll stop right there at the end of verse... I guess we actually went through verse 40. And wait till the next time. But let's... let's th- any comments or questions this morning? Any observations? What you're seeing in this story? As John is telling it rather uniquely? Any thoughts? Questions, comments, none? Barabbas, what, according to notes, mm-hmm. Here, mm-hmm. Was, was had part in a rebellion against Rome. Yeah. Mine says revolutionary. A revolutionary, not just a robber. Yeah. Mine says terrorist. A terrorist, yeah. So that makes the contrast even greater. Here's the one who's doing exactly what he shouldn't be doing that would get us all in trouble with Rome. I can't believe Pilate would release him. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? But isn't that kind of a micro event of Jesus died in his place? Yeah, sure it is. Just like us? Yeah. So Barabbas becomes the most evil, if you will, the, the, the representation of evil, and Jesus dies for him. Absolutely. In, a, his in his place. In his place, yeah. I'm going to take Barabbas out and take places, and that's a very... Good analogy. Mm-hmm. Pilate seems like he came face to face with the truth, mm-hmm. but yet he turned from that and did what the people wanted instead of. It's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes I think we come face to face with Jesus, but because of the pressures of people, yeah, we don't want to. It's a great point. We don't want to make that change or stand up yeah. for Jesus. Matthew adds an interesting point to the story. In Matthew's Gospel, he he tells that at this point in the story, before Pilate sentences Jesus when he's thinking about this and he's been talking to Jesus, Matthew adds that his wife sends word to him. His wife sends a note to him and says, Hey, don't have anything to do with this guy. I had a dream last night. I suffered in a dream all last night about this man. Do not have anything to do with him. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, what did she mean by that? Meaning... Don't have anything to do with him, meaning don't let him go or don't have him killed. Uh, There might be problems. We're not really clear what she meant by that. But there was obvious uh, unease on Pilate's part of what to do with Jesus. He has the authority to set him free or the authority to condemn him. And in not in this gospel passage, um, but you will hear the words. Let's see if it um, if it comes out. Does John bring it out? We're, we don't, I always hate to get ahead of myself, um, but we know that there comes a point uh, where Jesus says, "You have no authority over me. You think you have authority over me, but you." 
but you have no authority over me. That's kind of what he was saying earlier when he said, if I were a king of this world, no way you could hold me. So it's interesting, full of these contrasts. The, de- the trial of Jesus was a sham by the Jews. It was shouldn't even been brought to Rome, but it did. And Rome, it appears, through Pilate, is nervous enough that he's going to let it go through. He's cautious enough. He's worried enough. Because we know that from history records that Pilate was governor for 12 years. And there were many insurrections during that time. This whole talk about Messiah. Remember there had been other previous false messiahs. We've talked about that in our studies before. There's been revolutions. There's been uh, uh, revolts, things like that, that are always tried. We know that there was a band of Jews, especially from up around the Galilean area, called the Zealots. We know that a few of Jesus' disciples were known to be Zealots. That was kind of like a political party, if we would think of them. They were just, they were bent on their whole worldview was about revolt from Rome, the Zealots. Um, so, you know, Pilate probably had good reason. He's, I can't afford to be because he knew his life was on the line. If if Israel couldn't be controlled, then Pilate was going to get pulled. He would lose his life and his style. The Caesar would be very happy to just replace Pilate with somebody else. And that's exactly what happens. We read in history, not in scripture, but in history. Before his 12 years of, of reign is up, he is... Uh, Replaced. Pilate is replaced. Now, we're going to follow through next week with this. This, uh, what happens during the scourging and this, how how that dialogue goes. Any more questions? Good thoughts. Good thoughts. Yes. I was reading after last week in one of the commentaries about Annas. Yes. And his being a high priest also meant he controlled the monies. Uh huh. And that he made much of his money by the lambs that were brought for the slaughter that were impure, mm. got sent back to a particular place to get pure ones, which was his place of selling pure ones. And he charged three, four times as much as they did at the temple. Such, such. So maybe such, he had a good reason for wanting Jesus gone. Yeah, such absolute criminality. Yeah. Uh, corrupt. Corruption within the high priesthood, wasn't there? They had a whole system that Jesus was overturning, didn't they? <laughs> a whole economic system and political system. Good point. Well, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word today. As we prayed in the beginning, enlighten our eyes, open our hearts and minds, help us to be fed by your word, to be led by you. As we continue to study, continue to draw us ever closer to you and to your truth through this beautiful scripture. Thank you now for this time together. I ask your blessing on those who are not able to be here, but bless us until we meet again. Now, and we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, as one God forever and ever and unto ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word 
helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.